The reading is taken from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29, and can be found on page 1135 in the Church Bibles. That's Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. 
they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become, been like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we just sung these words, O praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. And we pray, Father, that as we come to hear your word now, that that would be the cry of our hearts, that we would see your redemption more clearly and we will praise you as a result. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take a seat and uh, keep that passage open. It's on uh, page 1135, Romans chapter 9. And um, I'm afraid I haven't got an outline for you on the back of the service sheets, but don't worry, um, I will be showing us where we're going uh, a little bit later. I was afraid I was on holiday this week, so didn't get to the printers in time. Romans uh, chapter 9. Now, Romans chapter 9 has all the potential for making a controversial sermon. It contains some of the most hot potato topics in the Christian world. Topics like predestination, Israel today, God's election. uh, Topics that have literally split the church over the centuries. So you can imagine how much I was looking forward to preaching it this morning. Yet here's the thing. As I've spent more time in this passage... Do you know what? I found it to be one of the most assuring and comforting sections in the whole of Scripture. See, I think if we come out of this sermon this morning uh, thinking about all the passages' difficulties, and some of it is hard, or we kind of just fixate on all the controversial ideas, actually we've missed the point of it. Because this passage is here to assure us Now, there's lots of detail today, but um, if we get lost, we need to keep coming back to verse 6, because here is the main point. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. See, today we're beginning a series uh, for the next four weeks on Romans 9 to 11, and um, this is what Paul is writing these chapters for. It's to show to us that God's word has not failed. We can trust it. And today, in chapter 9, Paul picks up on one big reason we might think that God's word has failed. You probably heard in our reading that in verses 1 to 5, Paul talks about Israel. And you think to yourself, why Israel? Well, Paul Paul points out that they've benefited from incredible privileges. Look at verse 4. He says this about Israel. There's halfway through. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs are divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised. Amen. See, they had amazing privileges, but here's the thing. Hardly any of them were now benefiting from God's salvation. In Paul's day, most of them had rejected the gospel And he had the scars to prove it. And that raises a huge question. What was God doing with Israel? It could seem that God had kind of failed to deliver at the very last stage. 
Imagine um, you uh, had a spouse or a friend who said to you, let's go to Paris for the weekend, I'll take you, it's my treat. And uh, they show you some of the brochures about um, what you're going to see, you decide on what type of tickets, how you're going to get there, you plan on what you're going to do while you're there. But the day comes around for them to take you and um, they're nowhere to be seen. You phone them up and there's no answer. And you realise that something has gone wrong. And Paul thinks it could seem like that with Israel. God had done so much with Israel. The covenants, the promises, the temple. And now they seem to have fallen at the last hurdle. Now imagine if that was the case. What would, do that, what would that do for your assurance as a Christian? In chapter 8, verse 39, uh, he says this, Neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation will able to separate us through the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But if God failed to deliver what he promised Israel, how can we trust him that nothing will separate us from his love? See, that is what chapter 9 is about. It's showing us that God has not failed. Israel was not a mistake. And how does he show this? Well, he shows us three things uh, from this passage. Uh, Here's your three points. He says three things about God's salvation. First of all, it's about promise, not privilege. Secondly, it's about mercy, not merit. And thirdly, it's about God's plans, not our perspective. Promise, not privilege. Mercy, not merit. God's plans, not our perspective. The first of those points, um, it's about promise, not privilege. See, if you were to take a Jewish Jewish person uh, from the first century and ask them, what makes you part of Israel? they would have produced their birth certificate. Because they thought to be part of God's people was a matter of biology. It was all about having the right ancestors. And Paul points out that it never worked like that. Not everyone who calls themselves an Israelite is a true Israelite. And he proves that point by picking two examples from the first days of Israel. Now this bit, I'm not going to lie, it's a little bit complicated. So I've done a diagram, and I'm pretty chuffed with this. This took me... Uh, quite a while to get all the emojis lined up and everything like that. So I hope you do appreciate it. Um, not the main thing to take away this morning, uh, but there we go. But um, you'll see he speaks about two families, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and Esau and Jacob, two brothers. And he points out that Ishmael and Isaac both had Abraham as their father. So if biology was to qualify you as being part of God's people, these guys get a big tick. Because Abraham was literally the daddy when it came to being part of Israel. But look at what Paul says in verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, um, that needs a bit of breaking down. Uh, You'll remember back in Genesis that uh, Abraham and Sarah were promised a son. Uh, God said a son would come. Um, But um, Abraham and Sarah got impatient and they decided to kind of hurry things along a bit And so they got Abraham to sleep with the servant girl, and Ishmael was born. And they thought, success, we've got a descendant. But God says, no, Ishmael won't be the son. It's through Isaac that my promise is going to come. Do you see the point? There were two sons of Abraham, but only one of them was part of true Israel. Now, people might object and think, well, yeah, but Ishmael didn't have a great start. He was born from this servant girl. He he had a different mother. But Paul says, well, look at the next generation then. Look at Esau and Jacob. 
They were twins. They had the same father and mother. In, in fact, in the original, it says they were produced in the same act. A bit too much information, but you, you get the point. But only one of them was part of Israel, verse 12. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. See, if one of those two twins was to qualify, it would have been Esau. He was the oldest, he had all the credentials, but God called Jacob. Only Jacob was part of true Israel. Now, if that's all confusing, come back uh, in here, because verse 8 is the main thing we need to take away. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. The point is that salvation doesn't rest on privilege. It rests on God's work, God's choice, and God's promise. Uh, about a decade or so ago, when I was in London, I had a friend who worked in the Gherkin, you know, the big um, green tower in the centre of London. And um, I got chatting to him, and he said, to, he said, you should come in one time, and we'll go up to the top floor. Uh, the top's got a kind of big open space, maybe you've been, and uh, it's pretty incredible. And he says, come in, we'll, we'll go and have a look. And I, I thought to myself, can I just walk in? It doesn't sound like um, I'm going to be allowed. And he said, no, if you're wearing a suit, no one will ask any questions. So I met him one day, went through the airport-type security, and we got in a lift, went up to the 45th floor or whatever it was, and um, we were greeted by this very stern, professional-looking person. And she said to us, what are you doing here? And I kind of showed my suit, expecting that would get me in. And she said, no, if you've not been invited, you need to go. And with red faces, we returned back to the lift and the ground floor. See, Israel thought that their birth certificate got them in that that was all that counted. That was a kind of automatic pass to salvation. But Paul says it never worked like that. Can you see how this helps Paul's case about assurance? See, if you think Israel meant all the Israelites, all the children of Abraham, it seems like God hasn't delivered his side of the bargain. But if you see that salvation was always about the true Israel, then he has never let his people down. I hope we can see from this that the only reason we are a Christian today is because of God's choice. It's because of his promise. It's not down to birth. It's not down to experience. It's not down, certainly, not to merit. But you might push back on that and think to yourself, well, how can that be right? Because I made a decision to follow Jesus. I was on a summer camp or I said a prayer when I was older Or I grew up in a Christian family and I said a prayer with my parents. Didn't I do that bit? But look at verse 11. He says this, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by the one who he calls. The point is that Jacob didn't, he made a decision. But God willed that decision even before he was born. Before they'd done good or bad before they'd done anything. Now, I know this is a difficult thing to get our heads around, but it's, it's really central to the gospel. Because otherwise, we will think that we've got something to boast in. See, if there was 1%, 2%, 5% that we did ourselves, we would boast in it. We would be praising not only Jesus, but ourselves in the world to come. But it's entirely God's work and his decision. Look at verse 16. 
It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Uh, John Stott makes this point very clearly. He says this, election is an indispensable foundation of of Christian worship. It is the essence of worship to say, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Now, I wonder if we need to hear this point about promise and privilege ourselves. See, I wonder if we sometimes slip into thinking that if someone has the right exposure to Christian things, then they are automatically assumed to be a Christian. We think that if someone's come to church or grown up in a Christian family or goes on a Christian camp, then they will be saved. And when that doesn't happen, we can beat ourselves up about it. Perhaps even there are parents here this morning. And as much as you would like it, your children have not embraced the faith yet. And you think to their upbringing, you think, I gave them all the exposure possible. Did I do something wrong? What did I not say? What did I not do? And you feel the burden of responsibility for their salvation not happening. But can you see that is a wrong burden to carry? Salvation is God's work. It's not about privilege. It's about promise. Now, some of us will undoubtedly find that idea that God chooses very difficult. Uh, So it's worth seeing that Paul actually is a step ahead here because he uh, tackles that question in verse 14. See, he raises the objection, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? And he says, not at all. Is it unjust that God chooses? Now, it's important to see that question in verse 14 isn't a kind of general philosophical question about how does God choose and what about free will and all that sort of thing. It's a question about God's dealings with Israel. Is it fair that God only chose a certain section of Israel and not everyone? I mean, it sounds unfair, doesn't it, to think that God chose Jacob, not Esau, and Isaac, and not Ishmael. But how does Paul answer that objection? Well, he gives another history lesson from the very first days of Israel as a nation. Uh, He gives two examples, one Moses, one Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a complete brain fryer, and uh, I haven't got time to cover it this morning, so I'm afraid you'll have to ask me afterwards. But I I want us to focus on the first example he gives of Moses. See, he quotes from God's words to Moses on Mount Sinai. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, The timing of that verse is everything. Uh, You'll see in your little Bible notes that it comes from Exodus 33. Uh, Why does that matter? Well, it's just after Israel has made the golden calf. You'll remember in Exodus that, that Israel makes a covenant with God, and as part of that covenant, they agree to have no other gods apart from Yahweh. But they break the covenant. They build a golden calf and bow down to it. And as Moses comes down to the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he destroys them. And it's to symbolize that the covenant is over. The relationship is finished. But what does God do? Does he destroy them? No, he shows mercy. And he says to Moses, I will make two stone tablets again. Now, was that unfair for God to do? In fact, what would be the fair thing for God to do? It would have been to destroy them. They broke the agreement. But God doesn't do that. And so the fact that he shows mercy 
isn't unfair because they didn't deserve anything. Give you, to give you an example, imagine a young married couple uh, get married and, and their life starts out happy enough together. But then the husband starts getting home late from work and his wife asks him where he's been and he, he's a bit cagey with the answers. And one day the wife is um, working at the desk and the husband's phone is left out and a message appears that seems quite suspect. And she confronts her husband and he confesses to having an affair with someone in the office. Now imagine she says at that point, you've broken our marriage vows, the marriage is over. Would she be in her rights to do that? Well yes, the covenant has been broken. But imagine she says instead, I know this is going to be difficult and I know what you've done is wrong but I want to keep our marriage. Would that be unfair? No. She's showing mercy. And and the point is you can't accuse God of being unfair in showing mercy to some because his mercy is always undeserved. It was right undeserved right at the start of Israel's history. See, I think a lot of us hear um, the idea that God chooses and they kind of imagine God with a deck of cards um, saying, no, not that one, yes, that one, no, not that one, yes, that one, yes, that one, no, not that one. But it's not that because that assumes that we're all neutral. Rather, it's everyone deserves hell but God chooses mercifully to save some. I don't know about you, but the shock I find here is not that God chooses but that he chooses anyone at all. Now I realise this is difficult for our culture to get our heads around because I think we live in a time of uh, divine presumption. We can think that we have a right to God, that if he exists, he should love me. You may have come across this quote from Henrik Hein. Um, He was a sceptic about religious things. uh, And he was asked what would he say when he met God. And he said this, of course God will forgive me. It's his job. And if we think like that, we will think God is being unfair when he doesn't save all. But Romans has been teaching us very clearly, hasn't it? No one is righteous. No, not one. We all deserve judgment and not heaven. See, when we grasp that there's not one iota of our merit that warrants God's salvation, that it's his free choice alone, we will not point the finger at God, we'll be amazed that we've been saved at all. Perhaps we do still find that difficult. Um, Which is why Paul, I think, gives us one more uh, point in verse 19 onwards. Uh, Here we move on to our third point and see that uh, salvation is about God's plans, not our perspective. Now, I'm not going to lie, this section gets very dense, so buckle up. This, I think, is one of the most complicated uh, sections in Romans, probably the whole of Scripture. But I, I don't think it is as complicated as it could be if we keep in mind the context and what Paul has been speaking about. See, remember, the issue on the table here is how God has dealt with Israel. And by this point, it could feel like that God has been changing the rules. Israel was the plan, but it wasn't quite all of Israel, and um, God was kind of working his mercy, but we didn't know how. And you, you might think, Paul, who, how can you blame Israel for not thinking that they've been led up a, a dead end? And Paul's answer here is twofold. He says, remember who you are, And remember who God is. See, first of all, he says, remember yourselves. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay uh, pottery for noble purposes and some for common good uh, use? My daughter loves painting at the moment. I mean, it seems like everywhere around the house there's a painting, drawing uh, somewhere. Uh, You can't put anything down. And um, I've never once heard one of those paintings answer her back and say, why did you paint me like this? If I did, you probably should phone the authorities. Uh, I'm probably not in a good state. But uh, you see the point, don't you, that she's created it, has no right really to to say, why did you create me this way? And Paul makes a similar case with us and God. Now, some people read that and, and think that Paul's essentially saying, shut up, don't ask any more questions. But actually, what he is doing is much more subtle. See, actually, he's quoting Job's words here. Now, you'll remember that Job, he couldn't understand what God was doing. He suffered, he's treated unjustly, he felt, but then God answered him. Or rather, God didn't answer him, he showed himself to him. And when he did, Job said this, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. See, Paul says, remember Job, he thought he could work things out, but when he saw God's perspective, he had no answer. See, it's like a microbe trying to understand the Milky Way. See, God will do right. We can trust him with that. We won't be able to question his wisdom. But that's not all. Secondly, he says, remember how God works. Now, he quotes here from uh, Hosea. Um, You may remember Hosea is... um, Hosea, rather, uh, is told to marry a prostitute, and uh, he did, and they had children, and they were told that their daughter should be called No Mercy. Now, we're expecting uh, in October, we're very excited, and we're starting to think about new names for children, and uh, if it's a girl, I'm not going to call it No Mercy. That's not going to make it to our shortlist. Um, they had a son as well, and uh, he, God gave them the name um, Not My People. Again, it's probably not going to be Uh, one of our top names. But then, uh, the point is that God was saying to these people, it's over. There's no mercy, and you're not my people. You've broke the covenant, and that's it. And that's how it felt in Paul's day. Israel had turned its back, and it seemed like God had finished with them. But look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people. I will call her my loved one, whom is not my loved one. See, Hosea is told to go back to the registry office because there's going to be a renaming ceremony. Because God renames the kids, I will call them my people, my loved one. And the point is, Paul makes here, is that when it looks like hope is lost, that God is within his rights to judge, and he will judge, we mustn't forget it, But that judgment is not the end of hope because that very judgment he is using to bring salvation to others. Have a look at verse 24. Even us, he talks about, whom he has also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, talks about uh, God's judgment as the work of his left hand because even his judgment can be used to bring salvation to many. It's what God promised Hosea, and it's what God has done time and time again, and it's ultimately what we see God do 
in the death of his son. So you'd expect the cross, the final rejection of Jesus, to be the end of it, to be the final breaking of the covenant. And the expectation was that just everyone would be destroyed. But even that evil act that warranted judgment, God uses to bring salvation to millions. I don't know about you, but I think it's easy to second-guess what God is doing in our culture, to despair at our current climate and think, well, our nation's under judgment. But this chapter doesn't allow us to say that because it gives us hope. Because we remember that God is in the business of salvation. Even when rejection comes, even when it looks like lots have turned their back, hope is not lost. He's still calling people to himself. See, God's word never fails. He's kept his promises to true Israel. He's not being unfair in showing mercy to some because no one deserves his mercy. And when it looks like hope is lost, God is still working to bring salvation to others. And you'll have to come back for the next two weeks and hear how he does that. But as we close, what does this mean for us? Well, let me give you three things to take away. First of all, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. See, remember, your salvation is not your work. So don't put yourself on a pedestal. Yes, you made a decision, but God is behind that decision. So there's no room for looking over the fence to non-Christians and thinking we're any better. We both, uh, we all deserve, we only uh, uh, put God's people because of his mercy. But secondly, don't think too lowly of yourself. Don't think too lowly of yourself. Remember, salvation's not your work, so don't look down on yourself. There may be some of us here this morning struggling with sin, thinking, how do we keep going, tempted to despair? But remember that God has chosen to show his mercy to you. So we need to look more to his mercy than to our failures. Thirdly and finally, remember the family business. God is in the business of salvation. Even the stubblest rebellion, even the darkest moments like the golden calf, even the death of his son is not the end. God uses those things to bring salvation to others. Let's pray. It is not as though God's word had failed. Our gracious Father, we praise you for your wisdom. The Father, you've never failed in any of your words. And we thank you, Father, for the way you've shown us that in the lessons from Israel. Please encourage us with these words, Father, if we're tempted to doubt. Please correct us, Father, if we're tempted uh, to look to our own efforts and achievements. And please assure us, Father, of the gospel and its truthfulness. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.